Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the edge cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, the New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. So, welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and my guest today is an absolute internet and publishing veteran. He published, I think, thousands of books in the last 40 years, and I think he pretty much made my nerdy life much more enjoyable. He predicted tech trends such as the Web 2.0 and is referred to as the Oracle of the Valley. He is a fearless geek and philosopher. He is father, author, VC, and probably a really great guy. It's Tim O'Reilly. So thanks, Tim, for being here with me. Um, and I don't know if I forgot any detail about yourself. No, I think that's just fine. I have chickens in my backyard. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Um, so first of all, I want to, want, to, want to thank you because you made so many hours so much more enjoyable and saved me a lot of time <laughs> in the past. So, so thank you for that. And maybe you can, you can tell us a, a bit more in, of how you save, save time of, of your readers. Um, well, that kind of goes back in a lot of ways to the very beginning of my technical writing career where and it's very hard for people to understand today just how bad it was in the 19, you know, I guess it would have, would have been the, uh, you know, the early 1980s. And we're writing manuals and you, know, you want to basically write about, hey, this feature doesn't work or here's how you work around it. And, uh, you know, we were, we were consulting writers and they're like, oh, you can't say bad things about our product. You know, and, you know, and in fact, they didn't even want you to write in the, uh, you know, address the reader. You know, it was all written in the third person. You know, the, the, the product does this. And uh, it was such so liberating when we published our own books that we could literally say, you know, this feature doesn't work. I remember working once we started be publishing and not just writing our own books. I remember working with an author and he said, I can't write chapter seven because the software doesn't work yet. And I said, yeah, you can write it. That's what you write, <laughs> you know, because otherwise everybody's going to think it's them. You know, that's an incredible gift to be able to tell them that this particular, you know, stuff doesn't really work. And, uh, you know, that ability to capture the knowledge of users was where we really started. Uh, I remember a very early book that one of our, our first 
bestsellers, although certainly, I mean, it went on to sell hundreds of thousands of copies, but uh, you know, pre-internet, uh, everybody was using UECP dial-up uh, for networking and, and Usenet was, uh, you know, social media long before there was social media. And we had written the, you know, I had written the, the uh, you know, the, the manager's guide for how you did this stuff. And it was very arcane, you know, di- it's a dial-up network. And I didn't have access to all the equipment. You know, you had to basically negotiate, you know, you had to you know, uh, write it, what was called a chat script to get through various prompts. It was a little bit of, of in some ways, scripting the modem or scripting the, the, the networking device. And, and people would just send in tips, you know, like here's, here's the chat script for the, I can't remember the name anymore. And I don't have a copy of that edition of the book, but let's just say it's the AT&T 5510 port contender, you know, and it would be like, I'd go, great. I just drop it in the book. And the book grew from about 80 pages in the first edition to about 200 over uh, the next, you know, uh, 10 editions. And we would basically update it every time we reprinted it, mostly with just feedback from users. So it was really a user contributed aspect of our, of our of our publishing where we just learned from our users and then reflected it back out. Now, of course, today with the internet, you get that kind of stuff all the time. Uh, but we had this idea of that we wanted to uh, anticipate uh, what the reader needed to know. And one of the things I was proudest of in one of our ex-Window System books, again, it was probably late 80s, one of our readers wrote in, he said, every time the question is just starting to surface in my mind, the answer is on the next page. And I thought that putting things in the right order was also a, a huge part of what we always tried to do in our books. And, and it's what we try to do today in our online platform. Uh, you know, I guess that's the thing that we didn't talk about. The bulk of O'Reilly's business today is not publishing. It's our online learning platform, which is, yes, it's part of our publishing business and a significant part of our publishing revenue comes from our own platform. But it's also a platform for for uh, hundreds of other technology publishers, video trainers, uh, live online training, uh, interactive. Uh, you know, we bought Catacoda, which lets you do live live coding. Um, uh, uh, we've we've kind of got an answers product, which is a machine learning powered search that lets you ask plain language questions and get answers uh, from from any of the thousands of books and and it's amazingly transformative you know and uh so much better than the the search we had before uh it's also uh we're about to roll out uh you know answer search with from video uh and it's just it's, it's astonishing just to go to just the right magic moment you know go oh actually yeah somebody talked about that in the video from our uh you know 2016 open source convention uh talk on you know, Kubernetes or whatever, you know, uh, it's anyway, having access to all that is, is pretty transformative. Yeah. So distribution changed a lot, I guess. Um, and you, you yeah. actually invented stack overflow, uh, way, way below before Joe Spolsky did. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I th- well, not really. Uh, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, Joel did a fantastic job of, of understanding that you could really do a, a real, uh, you know, Q&A platform on the internet. I, but I do think that there's a real place for what we do, which is, you know, curated content. Uh, you know, one of the problems with Stack Overflow is, is you're not actually sure that it's the right answer. 
you know, you, you have to kind of wade through as you can with much on the internet and you have a, uh, four or five different voices. And again, I suppose that's true a little bit when you have different books, but we, we like to feel like we've, we've done a, a, a better job of identifying, um, good answers and, and putting, uh, you know, good people in front of, uh, the people who need to hear from them. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's also the difference between intent um, and inspiration, right? I think um, if, if, I, if I look at, for example, one book I, I had in the, I think, Late Zeros was uh, your Ruby cookbook, where mm -hmm. I got a lot of inspiration from um, how yeah. how things can actually be done and which things can actually be done, which I would never look for in Stack Overflow, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right, and, and and I do think that that there's something wonderful in in books in that they we still haven't entirely mastered online, which is they can give you the big picture, and then you can dive in, you can kind of leaf through them. Um, you know, I, I think of, of of how many programmers I know used to go in the days when when you could only see them in bookstores. You'd go in and you'd you know, just You know, that would be your recreation. You go and, and you know, see well, what are the new books that are out. And um, uh, th there's something to be said for limits. Uh, I remember uh, Alexander Pope, the poet, uh, used to write in rhyme couplets in the late uh, uh, 1800s. Uh, no, sorry, take it early, uh, late, late 1700s. And... Uh, He said he, he liked writing in this very limited form because it, it made his creativity come out through, through like the narrow aperture of a fountain. <laughs> and uh, uh, the internet obviously has a lot of amazing stuff, but it also has a lot of dreck. And uh, when you impose limits on what you have to say, you can actually hone what you do. And, and there are people, I think, Uh, some of our books, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, I think are really masterpieces of exposition. Um, uh, Anton Antonopoulos's uh, books on, on on Bitcoin or, or um, blockchain, um, Aurelien Garand's book on on machine learning. They're, you know, they're brilliant. They do a brilliant job of laying out the ideas and teaching from the ground up, but also you can jump in and get to really powerful levels of detail. Mm. And of course, you know, and, the, and with the internet, you know, I mean, on our platform, for example, you, you can actually go try the stuff. We have uh, either Katakoda or, or Jupyter Notebooks associated with many of the books. And so you actually can work with the code. Mm. And we're mm. continuing to go further along with that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's absolutely true. I, so I remember also the book uh, Collective Intelligence. It pretty much inspired me in, in so many ways um, to really understand what is what is possible in machine learning and and uh, where where to look at. Um, so it's 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 a it's, it's way easier to start with a book. That's right. That was one of the early ones, Toby Cigarin. <laughs> yeah, that was a great book. We actually can I tell, give you a whole old point. Uh, Uh, just about, you know, there's this famous saying in VC, which is also true in publishing, uh, which is uh, being too early is the equivalent of being wrong. I mean, that book wasn't a great bestseller, 
because it was just really on the front end of the wave. But if you want to go back even, I forget when we published that, but it was well before the machine learning hype. But we actually hired John Orwant, who used to be one of the you know, big Pearl guys as our CTO in, in 2000, I think it was. And he wanted to start publishing on machine learning then. And, you know, he was like, this is the next big thing. Yeah. <laughs> and of course it was, but uh, you know, if we had published uh, books on machine learning in uh in, in 2000, uh, they wouldn't have gone anywhere at all. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a too early prediction, right? Uh, comparable yeah, exactly. to, to mobile back then in the uh, yeah. early early 90s. So, uh, well, I mean, for that matter, well, ebooks. We, you know, the Kindle came out in 2007. Our first ebook product was in uh, 1994, I think. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little early, little early. Um, yeah, but um, like one thing, one thing you just you just uh, mentioned in a way is um, a trend I also see that um, writing somehow is also in te technical writing, but also writing prose um, somehow develops as being a secret superpower. Um, also in in some corporations, so Amazon, for example. Um, I think in product, they often start uh, with a press release, right? And they start writing a press release for a feature um, that you as a product guy just have to have to write to better better understand yourself and better structure yourself. Um, I think that's a, that's a nice thing, right? Yeah, well, I, I think it, it's not just that you uh, learn to write better. And Amazon's uh, idea of memos is also that people read them and they're therefore prepared for the meeting. You know, when you think about how much time is wasted in a meeting of somebody going through a PowerPoint, so it's all one way. Whereas if you, it, you know, it's a little bit like the flipped classroom, you know, in some sense, uh, you know, where you, 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 you know, you watch the lecture beforehand and then you have a discussion. You could do it with, uh, you know, somebody could record a presentation maybe, would have the same impact. But there's something about uh, reading a well-structured piece of writing that allows you to, you know, think about it, to digest it, to interact. And then, you know, you've all just read it and then they sit there and they discuss it. And I think it's a much more productive meeting. Maybe we step a little further back in your, in your early days. So, I mean, I, I, th I think you started your company in the seventies, right? Well, uh, yeah, very first beginning was, uh, would have been 78. Uh, so it was a mini computer era. By the way, uh, correcting dates, that first ebook was not 94, it was 87. <laughs> wow. Um, but um, so 20 years before the Kindle. Um, the, uh, yeah, we, we uh, yeah, we, I, I definitely started in, in the mini computer era. The big companies were Digital Equipment Corporation, HP, uh, Uh, you know, Prime Computer, Data General, they're all companies that are long gone um, with the exception of HP. And I think the very first manual I ever wrote was an assembly language manual. But, but, uh, for a but, but what is, what is, what, what, what is the history behind that? I mean, um, what is, what is your nerd path? How did you get into computing at all? How did you discover that as like being something that is your field of interest? You know, it was actually uh, through writing. I had a friend who was a programmer uh, uh, and he got asked to write a manual and he had no idea how to do it, but he was desperate for work. He was a contract programmer. 
And I said I'd help him out. And uh, so the first job we did together, uh, you know, he just would come back and, you know, we'd work. Uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of rewrote the stuff that he he brought back. And a lot of, of, of technical writing in those days was simply rewriting specifications and other documents. So I didn't really know what I was talking about. And in fact, then we, we uh, got our first... Uh, job together where we kind of pitched this idea. If you put a programmer and a writer together, you'd get better work than you'd get, um, you know, if you had, you know, one, because, you know, he could ask the deep technical questions and I could help produce better prose. And for whatever reason, uh, they bought it. And uh, it, but it was really quite amusing because the first couple of years, I didn't know anything. You know, I was, uh, I still remember the very first meeting I went to with my friend, the programmer. And afterwards we came out and I said, was he pulling my leg? Because basically, you know, they were just talking gibberish. I, you know, I, the, the terminology just didn't make any sense. And, you know, it was just through a lot of reading and that I started to make a picture of how everything worked. And it, it was, and you know, it was learning by doing and in, in some ways, I did some of my best work, and it was very formative for how I developed my editorial approach, which was it was really pattern recognition and seeing the or how all the pieces connected without necessarily knowing what they were. Uh, and I remember once, for example, there were, it was, was a, uh, a manual that we were working on, and we had specs from three different engineers, and they just talked about everything differently. And I suddenly had this... We, we were kind of putting out the manual where it was this chapter from this guy and a chapter. And I wait, 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 wait. No, they're all talking about the same damn thing, you know, from different angles. And we have to rewrite this completely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can often really simplify things when you're just, you, you, you know, you're just looking at, I actually used the analogy, you know, before, you know, you can see, you know, if, if you go to a, a, a soccer game or a football game or a basketball game, if you have, you're back farther. You can actually see the, the patterns more. And uh, so I, I, I've often felt like a lot of my observations about the big picture of what's going on in Silicon Valley are because I was living in Sebastopol, which is an hour north of San Francisco at a time when most of the action was down in, you know, Cupertino and Palo Alto. You know, so two hours away. I, I was watching from a distance. I wasn't going to all the parties. I wasn't talking to the people. I was just making my own observations about what was going on, where so many people were so enmeshed in the inner narrative that they couldn't, they were too close to see the patterns. And so I, I just had learned a lot about pattern recognition over the years. And, and, and that's where a lot of the, the work that I did, um, you know, in, in terms of activism became so important, for example, uh, on open source software. It was like where I said, wait a minute, uh, there's this narrative about free software, but it only includes software that has the GPL. Why wouldn't it also, that narrative, why doesn't it include the World Wide Web? It was put in the public domain. That's You can't get freer than that. Why wouldn't it include Apache? That's a different license, the X Windows system. And I was kind of, I had kind of cut my own teeth in, in Berkeley Unix rather than in Linux. And so BSD was sort of my, uh, you know, and in particular, I had, had this sense of, of the, 
the early Unix community around Berkeley, and, and you know Berkeley was contributing to, to AT and T System Five and System Three. I, I, I yeah, my first uh, Unix was actually I think it was actually version Unix version seven out of Bell Labs, but uh, and then pretty quickly System Three and System Five, and uh, and, and BSD. Uh, I think it was probably four point one was my first BSD, and you know I just watched that community build the software collaboratively. Even though AT and T had this restrictive license, I went, "Oh, the license is maybe has a good political purpose, but it's not the cause of what's going on." And we need to we need to understand this phenomenon, you know, including all of the pieces, you know. And you go, if we don't have a story that includes, you know, the web and the internet, you know, and the fact that Bill Joy wrote the TCP/IP stack that's used everywhere. Uh, including uh, in 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 Microsoft Windows, we don't actually you know the fact that that uh, uh, you know Paul Vixie wrote you know bind you know if we don't include that in the narrative, we clearly it's like a map with only half the roads, <laughs> and so we need a new map, and so that idea of, of drawing maps of technology and thinking about them. You know, something that's been with me throughout my career. Kind of, what do you, what do we, what are you seeing that's missing from the dominant narrative? Uh, is that also why you started with conferences? I think you back then started the OSCON conference um, to 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 actually help people finding through that jungle of of different directions. No, and- uh, actually, I would say the the. Um, The, the original, the first conference we did was actually our Pearl conference, which grew into OSCON. But it wasn't really driven by the goal of um, of, of 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 unpacking the knowledge when we first did that. It was really the fact that there was no marketing department for free software, you know, and it was literally sparked by the fact that Sun had just launched Java One. And I went, well, who's going to do that for Perl? I mean, Programming Perl was the best-selling computer book of the day. Uh, Perl was referred to as the duct tape of the internet. And, and everybody's talking about Java. And, and in fact, there was this great uh, story, Andrew Schulman, who was a, a writer who actually wrote about Windows. But he had this story uh, about uh, Microsoft's ActiveX, which was this technology that they had uh, released. And they had a big television ad campaign And, and Andrew has written books like Undocumented DOS and you know Unauthorized Windows. Uh, uh, he did some analysis on the technology that was shown in the ads, and he said, you know, the only part of that uh, demo that they showed in their their television ad uh, was the little animated taxi cab. That was the only part that was ActiveX. Everything else was done with Perl. <laughs> and, and I thought, and I thought, oh my God, you know. How do we tell the story about this important technology? And more than that, how do we bring these people together? Because that was the other thing. You know, Perl existed, and this is still pretty early in the web. I mean, there were websites to be sure. I mean, it was, uh, uh, you know, 97 when we launched that. Um, but it was mostly mailing lists. And you knew all these people from their text voice. And I still remember, like, I imagine Larry, Larry Wall is so different in person than he, uh, than he was um, 
you know, in, you know, uh, as a writer, you know, and you read Larry, a big personality, you know, uh, I imagine him as this sort of red bearded pirate, you know, and then you meet Larry and he's this very quiet, thoughtful guy, <laughs> you know, who's very loud and, and, and incisive and funny and, uh, uh, when he writes and, all these people just knew each other from mailing lists and the, the, the joy of that first conference. Again, it was just, I wanted to throw a party for Pearl. I wanted to say, you guys matter. And I remember I, I uh, my head of marketing went and found a hotel. I said, no, this isn't good enough for Pearl. We have to have a better hotel. You know, let's take the risk. And we saw, so we really saw it as subsidized marketing for uh, the community, you know, to tell the story that this language matters. And then of course, you know, we, we, uh, we followed that up with the, what came to be called the open source summit. And then we realized, oh, we need to, you know, do this for all of the communities because here's this movement that's incredibly important and, and it's just starting to be recognized. I mean, nobody knew, you know, when I first put all these guys up on stage together and had a press conference and I said, you know, well, all these guys have in common. Yeah. I said, you know, I, you know, I call out the audience, you know, do you guys have a website? Yeah, newyorktimes.com. Okay, well, do you know why? I don't remember. At the time I was prepared with, I remembered what the New York Times uh, IP address is. Do you know why you don't? It's because this long-haired guy here wrote the software. Hey, you send the email. It's this long-haired guy here, you know? Uh, <laughs> you know, and it was actually, and I wrote this, uh, you know, this narrative, uh, you know, that, that, that open source was actually the heart and soul of the internet of the day, you know? And... And uh, and it was really amazing period because over the next week, it was about a week. I did I probably did 40 interviews in the week after that. And at first it was like this, this is this crazy idea. You mean open source isn't this radical movement that's sort of trying to over, you know, overpower you know, commercial software. No, this is the inside of all this big, the, the big hottest commercial thing that's going on today. And and to have everybody wake up to that, and that's why I've always loved that. There's this phrase from uh, Edmund Schlossberg, who once said that the skill of writing is to create a context in which other people can think. You know, and I told a story that changed the way people thought about uh, why this software mattered, and it was really just telling you know a better story that it wasn't just about Linux; it was about the internet. And, and Linux was part of the story, but it wasn't all of the story. Mm. And um, how do you think this story now changed? I mean, um, I think open source uh, became a much more, a much less independent um, playground of, of the big corporates. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think of, of today's world of open source and today's world of also the, the web and how it changed and evolved? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny, of course, because I got in a lot of trouble with the open source community by saying pretty early on that, uh, and particularly with the free software community, that, that their licenses weren't going to work, you know, because of the way that software was changing. I, I had a, 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 a an exchange with Richard Stallman at a, uh, a conference in Germany. It was called Masters of OS or Wizards of OS, I think it was called in Berlin in uh, '99. And RMS came out in the Q&A and he was sort of questioning me, but I was just basically saying, look, uh, if you had all of Amazon's source code, you could not run Amazon. 
You know, if you had all of Google source code, you couldn't, I mean, Google was much less visible at that. So I think I mainly talked about Amazon. You, you know, it, it, it's, it's got all these business processes. It's got, uh, you know, uh, it's really an application that, that people are running. And, and Richard's response was, well, it's not running on my computer, so it doesn't matter. And I was like, no, you're wrong. It, it, it really, you know, software is no longer, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the first wave of open source was that it was an artifact of, of how software was being distributed in the early internet era. Um, and I don't think people understood that enough, uh, that it was, there was an architecture of participation that was fundamental. Where, you know, if, if you looked at the freeware culture of the PC, you didn't have source code. And the reason was that you're, 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 you could just distribute, uh, um, compile binaries and they ran. But Unix had this crazy architecture where you had a standard operating system that ran on different kinds of hardware. So you actually had to modify the software in order to run it. You know, it was, yeah, it was mostly portable, but it still had to be ported. And, um, so you had to distribute source code. And, and, and people don't, never realized enough how, how formative that was to the original open source movement. And what I saw was that that architecture was going away. You know, that effectively when you started to move to what we now call software as a service and, you know, you'd be, you'd, you basically could just provide portability without providing source code. So you still had other reasons why source code really matters. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way to, if you need to modify uh, the code, but it was going to have a very different place. And of course, uh, you know, if you, you know, companies now use it strategically, but, uh, you know, like Google will open source, you know, TensorFlow because it, they see that as a way to get their way of doing machine learning uh, to be more widely adopted. Uh, it's a way of training talent without having to pay to train them. Uh, but, you know, it's not essential in the way that it was in the 90s. Just isn't. You know, that was the, you know, like I, I wrote a piece. Uh, it was, I guess I'm trying to remember when it was. It was sometime in the 90s. I wrote a piece for Nature. The, the science magazine. And, and it was really about, it was a meditation on Stuart Brand's uh, 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 statement, information wants to be free. And everybody would always forget that he, he added, but it also wants to be valuable. And I kind of wrote about the way that Bill Gates and Larry Wall both had the same goal. They wanted to make their information valuable. They wanted to make software valuable. And uh, Larry basically said, oh, well, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm, I know how to make my software valuable. I want to get it into more hands and I want to give back to the people who uh, gave me so much. And of course, Larry, people have forgotten this now, but you know, one of Larry's uh, you know, greatest contributions to the open source movement was Patch, uh, you know, the software that you know, basically allowed people to, again, you were in a very low bandwidth environment and so people literally sent around diff files rather than entire bodies of source code. And Patch was the program that read the diff file and figured out uh, how to apply the changes uh, to, to basically make an updated version out of the old version. And, you know, that was huge for that open source community because, you know, if, 
you know, when Berkeley Unix was being distributed as, as open source, nobody was downloading it. You were sending tapes you know, around, you know, nine-track tapes. And so, uh, you know, it's very easy to think in today's internet when you can move massive amounts of data. Uh, but no, you didn't do that. I still actually have framed on the wall uh, the diskettes that I got. Uh, I, I was running a, a, an old, uh, a, you know, kind of a, a now long gone uh, Unix machine. We had written the manuals for Burroughs of all companies. They had, they had, uh, bought a company called Convergent Technologies and we had written the manual for the B20, Burroughs B20. And it was our first Unix system that we actually, you know, got to have our own as opposed to working on a client site. And it didn't have, uh, 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 you know, Usenet. Uh, sorry, it didn't have, what was it? What was it? No, it didn't have TCP IP on it. And uh, we were on, uh, on Usenet. And I put out a request. I said, does anybody have TCP IP for the Convergent Technologies miniframe or Burroughs B20? And some guy from uh, John Langeling was his name. I still remember it. And I, so I have the, the little mailer and the diskette you know, framed on my wall. Some random guy at, uh, I think it was at Denison University in Ohio or you know, just mailed me this, you know, these diskettes with TCP IP. And that's how we got ourselves actually onto the internet. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, The About You Cloud. The About You Cloud offers a full-stack e-commerce solution as a service that runs on exactly the same infrastructure as The About You Shop does. It is mobile-first, can act as headless system, event-driven, can be fully localized and is super integrated into existing solutions. Besides that, it is designed and developed by a really smart CTO and friend of mine, Sebastian Betts. About You has set up a task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. This task force will help you with the launch of your shop, as well as with fulfillment, marketing, support and internationalization. Simply write to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by this task force. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a nice and, and very geeky time uh, it was back then, right? And, and oh, well, hard, hard, hard to really compare it to today's platform economy where companies that never wanted to be evil in a way changed. And uh, I don't know, Facebook is playing God and... Uh, and locks you out uh, whenever they want to. Um, so, in a way, that must be must be sad to see, um, isn't it? No, no, not really. I, I guess I would say first of all, I predicted it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I I, I I see a lot of these technologies run in cycles, and in a lot of ways, a lot of my thinking, say about Web 2.0, was driven by. Uh, you know, the company that was dominant when I first entered the industry, which was IBM. IBM was, and, and then, you know, how Microsoft had overthrown them because there'd been a change. You know, I wrote a paper, I think it was in, uh, it was sort of a talk, I think in 97, called Hardware, Software, and Infoware. That's what I called it. And it was, it was this idea that IBM had dominated the industry through control over hardware. You know, they, they basically, they, 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 they owned the standard and they didn't realize that they didn't see that the PC was going to be a big market. So they opened it up uh, because they were kind of coming from behind in the microcomputer market. Uh, they published the specs and then other people could make them. And 
Bill Gates recognized that the, 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 in a world where there were multiple providers of the hardware, the software would be the lock-in point. And so that transition of power from IBM to Microsoft was the hardware to software transition. And I started asking myself, well, what's happening with the web? You know, so uh, I, I started thinking about, so actually that would have been in, in uh, I said, when was that paper? I guess that was 97. I wrote, I wrote this, this paper. I, I remember delivering it again in Germany. Again, it was at uh, 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 Linux Congress in Würzburg. And uh, it was the same uh, place, uh, uh, place where Eric Raymond first delivered the cathedral in the bazaar. And, and uh, I gave this talk and I was like, okay, well, the web is yet another platform change. And it's going to lead to a shift in power away from Microsoft. You know, open source and the open standards of the internet are going to change the game. And that's when I first began to speculate about what was going to become valuable was going to be data. And, you know, so I saw this thing where companies who were the, the upstarts, the radicals, uh, you know, somebody wins, they become powerful, they try to hold on to power, you know. And so that was, again, when I, uh, and I kind of, re that really developed out eventually into my, you know, sort of ideas about Web 2.0, which was the second coming of the web after the dot-com bust. Big data was going to be the center, cloud computing, although we didn't use that term. Uh, but also this idea that, and one of my principles was data is the intel inside, of course, because intel was the other monopolist. And so the idea was that data would be the next source of monopoly. And, and so one of my, I remember back in the, that point, I said, uh, you know, uh, Web 2.0 opens with collective intelligence and harnessing collective intelligence, but it ends with data is the intel inside. And, and of course, we see that now with the you know the monopoly dominance of companies like Google and Facebook, and now they're all being investigated just like Microsoft was, and they've suppressed competition and uh, they extract economic rents. That's actually a, that's probably something we didn't talk about. Uh, I have a project working uh, with Mariana Mazzucato uh, and her crew at uh, Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at University College London. And we're really doing research on how Amazon, Google, and really all of the big platform companies today extract what I've started to call uh, algorithmic rents. That is, they use their algorithms and designs to figure out who gets the value out of the system. And increasingly, they assign that value to themselves. You see it very obviously in Google, where you used to have organic search results, and you know now it's dominated by ads, which is putting money into Google's pocket. Which is exactly the opposite um, they they wanted to do initially, right? Um, yeah, and, and it really goes to show that you can talk yourself into anything. There's this great quote from um, uh, Upton Sinclair, uh, who was a, a When he, he was, you know, the novelist, who, muckraking novelist who wrote The Jungle about meatpacking, but he was also a, you know, socialist firebrand and he ran for president in the, in the 30s in the, during the Great Depression. And he had this great line when he was in campaign. He said, it is difficult to get a man to believe a thing when his salary depends on him not believing it. Mm. <laughs> and you think about that with, you know, with all the tech titans who have to believe they're still doing, they're still serving the user. You know, I mean, they have to be able to say, no, no, this is still in the interest of the user. Because if they, they couldn't face themselves, if they didn't believe that, 
And uh, it becomes more and more obvious to people on the outside that it's user hostile behavior. You know, I'm kind of trying to make that campaign with Amazon right now. I just wrote a piece, you know, critiquing Jeff's last shareholder letter. And I said, look, you want to be, you know, he ends with like, don't be ordinary. I go, yeah, if you don't want to be ordinary, you have to actually recognize your ad business cannot be serving the user ultimately. You know, it's like you used to show us the best product. Now you show us ads, you know, people who pay you. That that's that's a step backwards if you really want to say you're going to be relentlessly focused on the user. Yeah. I I I think that uh, besides showing ads, um copying uh various successful products from from small vendors is also a bad thing to do, right? Um it's also leading to less less choice and no no freedom of choice yeah. anymore, right? Well, well it, it is interesting because of course again This goes back to this uh, question of how it's very easy to convince yourself you're doing the right thing. You can still say to yourself, well, you know, uh, those people, you know, we're, we're, we're lowering prices for consumers. So that's a good thing. You know, or we're, we're you know, they, they you know, we're, we're improving the quality or, uh, you know, and we do have a narrative where that's considered okay. You know, except in limited cases. And I think in general, you know, that's sort of my critique of our current version of capitalism is it excuses a lot of of sins on the basis that, well, you know, a, a more dynamic competitive economy is good for everyone. So therefore, uh, uh, let everybody, uh, you know, go be evil and, and it'll come out in the wash. And, and it, you know, we all now know that that's not true. And a, lo a lot of what I have uh, been writing about lately is, is a kind of a, a, a machine learning informed idea about the economy. And that is, you know, if you think about how optimization functions work in machine learning, you know, you, you know we, we really are trying to, to, to optimize and And, and, and metaphorically, even if you have many sub-optimization functions, you know, the companies like Google and Facebook are really trying to optimize originally for, you know, Google, for example, in search was always trying to optimize for you, find what you want and you go away. That was their ultimate uh, goal. Facebook was, we want you to spend more time on the site and, and interact with more content. Engagement was their, their key optimization. And, uh, you know, I, I realized, oh, well, we do that in our economy, too. And, and so, for example, in my book, WTF, I talk about how after World War II, they learned the lesson of what happened after World War I, which is, you, you know, you beggar, you know, you, you know the people who were defeated. Uh, you, you don't take care of your returning soldiers. You end up with, a, you know, you keep pandering to wealth. You end up with a, with a great worldwide depression and another war. We're not doing that again. So then they decide we're going to optimize for full employment. They have the GI Bill. When the people come back, they have the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe and Japan. Uh, you know, and we have, you know, we have basically 20 years of prosperity. And then there's this thing the economists call uh, Goodhart's Law, which is once you start optimizing for something, it ceases to be a good measure because it starts getting gamed. It starts not working for various reasons. And then you end up in the, in, in the, you know, the, the super high inflation of the 70s. And they go, oh, we need a new optimization function. And they say, oh, we know what it is. It's shareholder value. You know, it's basically the only, you know, Milton Friedman, the only obligation of, a, of the, the, the social obligation of a business is to increase its profits. 
And again, that does make the economy more efficient. It seems to work for you know, 20 years, and then it goes really off the rails. So now we're ready for another reset. So every, every you know, once in a while the, you put duct tape on it, right? <laughs> well, no, no, you have to actually really rethink it. And I think we're right in the middle of a deep economic rethinking of are we optimizing for the right thing? And the thing I'm trying to do is to use this moment in tech, you know, where we can see, uh, you know, say Facebook as a mirror and we can say, oh, oh, wait a minute. Facebook is... Uh, thought that it would bring people together if they showed them more of the content that they liked and responded to. And in fact, it drove them apart. They, they were wrong about their optimization function. So can we also see that we thought that this optimization function that we set for our economy would make us all more prosperous, but we now understanding that it drove inequality and that it's not really working anymore. We've got to fix it. You know, like if we can ask Facebook to fix it, can we also see that we got to fix our general economy? And, and there's a great term from uh, Charlie Strauss, the science fiction writer. He says that he calls uh, corporations slow AIs. And of course, governments are also slow AIs. They are, in fact, independent of their you know, creators. And that's a, a, also a key idea in my thinking, which is in some ways in this era of collective intelligence, when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're missing the point, which is that what's really happening is we're building these hybrids of human and machine. You know, that, that, that Google or Facebook, when we do, uh, you know, say image recognition, you know, it's like humans are part of that. Google search, you know, humans designed it, humans are tuning it, but, you know, so the, the algorithms were trained by humans, but there's this constant feedback loop. Oh, people clicked on the second link instead of the first link. They must like the second one better. The, the whole idea of the long click versus the short click that Google uses. These are, you know, we are part of the machine. And when we, I think when we look back on this, we'll go, why did they ever think that, you know, uh, the AIs would be independent of us? I think we're, you know, we're, we're part of this new global machine. Uh, you know, I, I gave a bunch of talks back, I don't know, must be, God, is, there, is it 10 years ago towards a global brain, you know, where we really are building a, a global brain and, and it's, it is us. And it is us mediated and connected by our machines into ever more complex uh, patterns. And again, that's not to say that we won't, have uh, things that appear to be independent AIs, but they really are. I think even then, uh, I, I think if if you know something like uh, you know Alexa becomes smarter and smarter, it will be because it is more and more enmeshed with all of its users. Obviously, but uh, still, it can lead to technology taking over tasks that uh, beforehand nobody nobody or we needed human to fulfill, and then you lose jobs and so on? Um, or I, I'm not really worried about that, quite honestly. What I'm worried about, because if you just look around, there's so much that we're not doing. You know, I, I kind of feel like if, I mean, there's, there's three or four arguments that you can make against this fear of AI taking jobs. The first is that uh, as Hal Varian, Hal Varian, Google's chief economist, gives a talk he, he has called Bots versus Tots. And uh, which is just look at demographics. You know, in a lot of advanced countries, he said, if the robots arrive 
they will will be lucky if they arrive in time. You know, the, 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 you know, we will need the labor productivity of robots because we, we don't have enough people coming along to support our, our aging populations in, in, in Western countries. And um, either that or immigration, you're gonna have to do one of the two. Uh, but, but, but that's probably even the less important. Uh, I mean, the real thing is we actually have to pass along the productivity gains. You know, we, you know if you look at the, the Industrial Revolution, we took all that productivity and we gave it to people in the form of reduced working hours and higher wages. And, uh, you know, the, the average uh, uh, you know, person in the, you know, in the 19th century worked 70, 80 hours a week. And, and then we went down to 35 or 40 in a lot of countries. And then it started creeping back up around this idea that we need to make the economy more a more efficient machine, and now people are, are you know are paid less and working you know we're, we're we've gone backwards instead of forwards. But it doesn't have to be that way. We just stopped, you know, we we stopped optimizing for for human well being and started optimize you know we, I guess we optimize for well being from the point of view of consumer pricing, and consumer goods, but not from labor. We didn't give people more time. And so I think that there's a, a huge opportunity to, to give people back time. And we have small things like that, like improved uh, you know, parental leave, for example. Um, but uh, I like Kai-Fu Lee in his book, uh, AI Superpowers, has this great idea at the end. He says, look, we should be using this productivity explosion of robots to fund what he calls uh, social investment stipend. You know, and that in some ways, and this is, I guess, another book that I've learned a lot from was Mariana Mazzucato's book, The Value of Everything, which is... You know, with this idea that we we decide what's valuable in our economy, and there's still a whole lot of things that we just don't include as economically valuable, even though they're so obviously valuable. And COVID is changing something. Caring, you know, I mean, looking after people, and so you start thinking about that, and you go, oh, uh, how would we, you know, provide uh, a stipend for doing things like, you know, looking after children? As, again, I mentioned we have some of that now. If you work for a, a you know. A, a big company, you you get uh, good childcare, but why not have that for everybody? Looking about, we all have more aging parents. Oh my gosh, we got to fund that somehow. And I think we'll we'll find our way there by giving people more time or giving them money to do things that you know we used to just say, well, no, that's on your nickel. And we just have to build the right recirculation mechanisms for that to work. But above all, we need to understand that the economy is supposed to serve people. And instead, we've, we somehow have given primacy to actually the value of the machine under this idea that, of course, you know, this is that Milton Friedman doctrine. Well, you give the money to the shareholders and they will decide what to do with it. But given that the shareholders are a, a very small subset of society, uh, that doesn't really work. We have to have widespread prosperity and we have to have the benefits of all this productivity go to everyone. So anyway, the the um, but the other thing is uh, on this sort of value boundary, you think about all the things that people do for love, not money. You go, why do we think that that people, you know, if you get the economic machine circulating well enough, you know, people will enjoy being with their friends. You, know, you think about you know, the work that uh, Dan Buettner did on what so-called blue zones, places where people live a long time. They, they socialize a lot. You know, the places where you know, they also have a lot of physical activity. You, know, you can easily imagine an economy where people are not working, 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 but they're 
working at their social media feed. You know, they're creating content for other people to enjoy. Oh, wait, you know, why is it that, you know, somebody who writes, uh, you know, poetry, you know, and says, I'm a poet and I got a job at a university, you know, but I'm really a poet is considered to be working or an actor who gets a job every, you know, every other year, it, it, you know, that's their real work. But, but somebody who makes YouTube videos isn't. Uh, but that's changing, of course, because now all of a sudden there's all these people who are actually, we figured out how to convert that creative economy into the money economy. Into to money again. And yeah. so much. And, and that's right. And so everything is an auction. <laughs> that is, in, in a way, that, that's also right. very stressful. But I mean, there is a way that, 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 that we are building a new kind of creative economy where there is convertibility. And, and of course, the software world is, is part of that too. You know, we are, we are creating for each other. And that's one of the things that's beautiful about software. And, and the fact that, that Silicon Valley has made it so much about money. I guess this goes back to what is a little bit sad. I mean, most of the real flourishing of software innovation that I've been around has been in markets where people didn't think there was a lot of money to be made. In the early PC, yeah, there were some people like Bill Gates who were like, oh yeah, this is gonna be a, a boom. But so many of the people were just like, oh, this is so cool. I have my own computer. I don't have to go to the big, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, university center or whatever. I, I can actually have one of these things myself. And it was this, incredibly absorbing thing and you're creating and you're sharing and and then the internet you know it kind of the piece it, you know microsoft sucked that opportunity out of the personal computer market and it rebuilt itself on the internet and i think we we see this periodic rebirth of innovation for the hell of it you know again even think about something like uh, like crypto you know the, the early crypto enthusiasts didn't think you know they they had no sense that it was going to be this incredibly valuable thing. It was really all about freedom originally. All the original, you know, cypherpunks and crypto people were like, we're going to build a, a currency that's independent of, of the man, you know? <laughs> and, and, and then later on, it went, it, it went more rapidly than some of the other things into, wow, being very centralized. Again, going back to my principle that I use all the time, Clay Christensen called it the law of conservation of attractive profits, which is when one thing becomes cheap or free and commoditized, something else becomes valuable. So that was my, I had given my talk about how it was hardware and it went to software and then it went, is going to data. And he gave this talk at the same conference. It was, I think it was the first uh, open source business conference. And we went, oh, we're talking about the same thing about this law of conservation of attractive profits. And, uh, you know, crypto tended out to be centralized by way of power. In some ways, also there was some innate centralization, and in it's a, something of a pyramid scheme. You know, the people who issue the currency that becomes popular uh, end up holding it all. So it was actually far less liberating than some of the early technologies like the internet. <laughs> but there, but there's other. Yeah, there, yeah there's, there's a slight a slight chance. Um, there's also, I think, the the term Web 3.0 um, or Web 3. Uh, somewhere in the Ethereum uh, e ecosystem, uh, which which you might know, I mean, as the inventor of Web Web 2.0, um, there is a chance to, to to for the web to actually become more de decentralized again through through uh, stuff like Ethereum, right? I think that's right, and and, and Ethereum is I think is intellectually very very interesting, and uh, Vitalik is is brilliant, and so yes, I I think that. Uh, And the whole that 
I, I I'm I, I'm not I'm not as deep into that world as I m- might have been earlier in my career. You know, just at this point, I'm kind of like I'm I'm doing more economics than I am doing technology because uh, I'm trying to change this and and public policy. You know, I'm really trying to change the way people think about. You know, I'm trying to help people to learn from the technology about public policy and the economy. Um, but I, I, I think it's super interesting. I, I, the thing that I guess I would say uh, that's going to be most liberating, quite honestly, is um, and most urgent is, is that we actually have to solve some new problems. I, I think that the biggest driver of both innovation and wealth creation over the next um, a couple of decades are going to be in, in, in public health and in uh, climate change. And, uh, you know, and in fact, that's that's really the last reason that I gave in my book why we didn't need to be afraid that we'd run out of jobs, because, oh, my gosh, you know, there's some some real challenges ahead of us and we will need all the help we can get. You know? <laughs> and, and that's the kind of the wonderful thing. I mean, you know, if you look at the production of the covid vaccines, you know, it's like amazing technology driven innovation. And uh we're sat now suddenly going, oh, we may be able to do mRNA vaccines for other diseases. You know, we may have a transformational opportunity there. You look at what's happening with the inflection point we've reached around electric vehicles, uh, you know, uh, the, the cost of, of renewables. You know, we're really at a point where we're actually building a new economy that's going to be around the next generation of problems. And I, I kind of see in a lot of ways the... The tech, the, the the computer tech for computer tech's sake, is actually being a little out of step with the next wave of opportunities. It's really going to be there's new areas where we can apply this. And I guess you, I guess you could say that that blockchain is that you know applied to you know in some ways to certain aspects of the economy. So yes, maybe it's it's an applied technology too. So apart from that, do you see like huge trends that are more connected to technology? Um, Like up the hill a bit, or well, well, the things I talked about are are huge trends connected to technology. I mean, the fact that you know we're you know biotech. Uh, I think uh, something like tw- uh, I think it was a recent uh, study I saw that there were twenty thousand papers on you know machine learning in biology. You know, published. Uh, that's huge. You know that that. The, the technology is converging with all these other fields. You know, you read whether they're hyped or not, you're hearing, you know, about, you know, they're making real progress on fusion, for Christ's sake, <laughs> for the first time where it seemed like it was always unattainable. Um, uh, I, I think that there there is a, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know we're, we're starting to do lab-grown meat. You look at things like vertical farming, Uh, you know, which it, it, it's so astonishing. When you talk to some of the people who are doing vertical farming, they are using the exact same types of technology that, say, Facebook does with hyper-targeted advertising, except they're doing hybrid, hyper-targeted, uh, you know, light and water and nutrients, uh, you know, to, to lettuce. Or strawberries, you know, it's amazing. They're just basically they're you know they're they're monitoring, you know, 
and going, oh, okay, we adjust this, we adjust that to optimize, you know, the production of particular flavors. And it's, it's, it's all incredibly driven by, you know, computer technology in this realm. You know, farming is going to be utterly transformed over the next uh, few decades. Yeah, I can imagine that. And food production. I can imagine that, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, and, yeah. Vegetarian food uh, or or artificial meat and stuff like that, where like the huge revolutions are just, yeah. just around the corner, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. And you mentioned uh, mRNA and the, the, the things that happen in biotech. Um, any other chances? So you are like a quite, quite positive guy who sees chances as far as I, I see you. Any other chances you 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 see across the road when when COVID is gone? Um, and any how do you think uh, our work will will evolve? Um, will this like potentially shape shape us a bit more uh, towards working less? Oh. Uh It's really interesting. First of all, I don't ever try to predict the future, despite the fact that people have, have said that about me. Um, I, I feel like I, I what I try to do is to identify factors in the present that are going to influence the future. You know, it's like, you know, it's like saying, here's this thing that's happening. It's important. And, and I think about the future as the sum of a set of vectors. And you can kind of look at those vectors But they're always unpredictable vectors. You know, I mean, you know, we, we kind of knew that, that pandemics were a possibility. We didn't know this particular one that it was going to come now. Um, uh, so I, I guess I would just say that that uh, COVID, you know, I do think I, I think it's radically reshaping people's understanding and expectations about office work. I don't think we're going to be going back to uh, the kind of of, um, of office culture that we had pre-COVID, and I think that's going to have a, a big shape on economic geography. It's going to have a big shape uh, shaping force on uh, the cost of of real estate, and we may yet see a real uh, you know uh, you know serious economic collapse. Uh, related to uh, you know all the overbuilt uh, office real estate, uh, I, I don't know that for sure. But at least again, if you again the other thing, I, I wrote this whole piece uh, is a series I wrote starting with an essay called "Welcome to the 21st Century," and I really talked about how I use scenario planning in my thinking, which is you think about a range of possibilities, and then you look at the vectors, and they might take you in this area or in that direction, and you you're really trying to think. Uh, probabilistically about a lot of things that could happen. And then you're just kind of watching for things that change your priors about what's actually going to happen. And so I look at this and I go, yeah, we could have a, you know, people go, oh yeah, we're going to start downsizing offices. And, and there'll be a set of people who had really big offices and they move into smaller offices. And so there's kind of a mid-market size that's probably going to be reasonably well served. Um, You know, but the, the 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 you know the people who have giant giant, you know, um, physical plants are probably not going to need them, and we'll see what happens there. But it could it could bring down prices, and depending on how leveraged, um, 
you know, the, the, the real estate investors. So it's not going to be terrible for Google. They own all these properties. And, you know, but if you're a, a, uh, uh, a real estate investor who's, who's uh, bet on, you know, particular, you know, level of rents in downtown San Francisco, you may well be going bankrupt in the future. So, you know, if there's enough, bad time for we if there's enough of those people. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's hard to say. It could also be that this is, you know, WeWork will be one of those things that has arrived just in time. Although I have to say, my problem with companies like WeWork, uh, and to some extent Uber and Lyft, uh, is that we, we, we replaced true uh, market competition with uh, competition between venture capitalists. You know, effectively... The market never decided what was the right business model. You know, the venture capitalists did. You know, the, Sunil Paul was the guy who invented the model. Uh, he raised thirty-five million dollars. That was actually the same amount that Google raised. You know, and that was all it took for Google. And uh, you know, uh, and, but if somebody had come along and said, "Well, you know, we're just going to pump so much money into some other technology that will," you know, again, they might not have worked with Google because they really did have a a unique, better mousetrap. But the companies that won, you know, like I guess I, I think if, if we hadn't had so much cheap capital coming in, uh, you know, where Uber literally raised billions, um, what we would have had is a lot more local experiments in this new model, just like we had lots of local websites. I mean, Google didn't come out in 1991. It came out in 1998. The, the web had, you know, went public in what, 89, uh, you know, we, we saw Yahoo in 94, RGNN was the first in 93, um, you know, Amazon started in 95. You know, you really had this, you know, almost a 10-year period before Google, you know, came along. And, it, and Google, didn't, it was almost 15 years into the web before it went public. And, uh, you know, money started flowing into the gig economy at massive scale maybe three years in. And uh, and so nobody got to experiment. What would have been really the right way to grow that thing, uh, to price it, to, to, to compensate drivers? You know, instead we had a model, and this is what I wrote about in this piece I wrote. Uh, it was a critique of Reed Hoffman's Blitzscaling book uh, called What's Wrong with Silicon Valley's uh, Favorite uh, uh, growth model. And it's this idea that you want to get to monopoly as quickly as possible. You raise a lot of money. You uh, And I think it's fundamentally anti, it's actually anti-competitive because the VCs, you know, start to gather and decide this is going to be the winner. And uh, the one with the most capital, if it's a market where it's very expensive to acquire customers, the, the one with the most uh, the most money wins and not necessarily the best technology or the best business model. Which is not the best thing, yeah. Um, yeah, that is yeah. something you can absorb. And and and, and, and so, how how, yeah. how do you change that? Well, I think you again part of the way you change is by getting people to recognize it, mm -hmm. you know, and you get uh, antitrust regulators to recognize it that you know, like the, that the the business model of Silicon Valley today is um, is monopoly, and if you're anti-monopoly, you need to. You, you know, you need to go back to the root causes, not to the, you know, catch them when it's already too late. Uh, but I think, you know, so there's sort of some competition policy things. But the biggest one, I think, is is realizing that 
we have optimized our economy for capital. And, you know, when there's just a lot of confusion, a lot of what I'm trying to get people to recognize is that the, the, the financial markets are not the same thing as the, the, you know, the operating economy of ordinary people and, and, and small businesses. And if you optimize for gigantism, you know, the whole th- idea about economic uh, uh, efficiency says McDonald's is better than that great little bistro down on the corner. Right. Because they're more profitable for, you know, it's a big, you know, they, they make lots of money. You know, Walmart is better than the local store. Um, Amazon is better than the local store. And, and you know, sort of interesting. So in the context of, of, of Biden's proposal to, re, you know, to treat capital gains taxes, uh, you know, I go, yeah, why are we paying? Lo- why, why in the U.S. do we pay lower taxes on money that you don't actually, you know, that, that you know, it's just money on top of money because most of the people are making it are, you know, you, you put in an investment, you get back, you know, 10x your money and you pay way less than somebody who has to actually work for their money. <laughs> you know? And uh, I kind of feel like, yeah, it's painful if you're, if you're rich and you kind of go, I was thinking I was going to get so much, but is that really not a bad thing if we actually slow down the, the movement of capital? We slow down the ability of venture capitalists to throw billions at, you know, at a WeWork, which turned out not to be a terribly good uh, investment, but also turned out to basically, you know, kill all the other people who were doing innovative things because they they had so much capital they could underprice all the little local startups that were going. Oh, we could apply this sort of technology model of uh, of, of of on demand to to office space. You know, I mean, they were basically, you know, we were killed everybody else, just like Uber killed everybody else, because we made capital so cheap that, that there was too much of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's same thing in farming. You know, it's like it's it's more efficient to have these massive farms. And and I think part of the opportunity of of what we have today is we can get efficiency without scale. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's going to be a really interesting shift to go, oh, you know, we learned the wrong lesson with efficiency and scale are somehow locked together when, in fact, we've now built all these efficiency machines that allow things to be small and efficient. Yeah, the 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 interesting thing is that um, the, the, the people that now li- uh, like organic food, for example, uh, the ones earning the most money, uh, but still, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an, it's an interesting um, observation of how how such trends can evolve and and lead to um, potentially a better world in the future, right? Um, that's right, that's right. I actually talk about organic food uh, in, again in my book uh, WTF uh, as an example of of how the economy could change, which is that when things become a commodity, you make them valuable by mixing in ideas. You know, it's like the creative economy. You know, it's not just, hey, this isn't just organic. It's gluten-free. Oh, wait, this isn't just, uh, you know, uh, organic. It's locally sourced. Uh, this isn't just organic. It's, uh, you, know, you know, again, we, we add ideas to things. And that's part of the creative economy, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting thoughts. Yeah. Um, 
maybe coming a bit closer to the end of my questions, uh, I have one for you, um, which is hard to answer, but um, I have a lot of CTOs listening and uh, we didn't do a very technical podcast, but if you could recommend three things to every CTO out there, what, what would it be? Um, can be anything. Uh, let me think about this. I mean, I, I think one of the first things I would recommend uh, is that I, I, I do think that machine learning is going to be transformative for every enterprise. And uh, even though there's a, you know, people are kind of going, is it really as big a deal uh, as we think? I, you know, my own experience just with our machine learning powered search on the O'Reilly platform. Uh, you know, we've rolled out this answers feature, but we're kind of, there's more to come. It's so astonishingly better than the previous generation. And actually, I actually think that there's something really interesting. Uh, the, the tool we're using, it's from a company called Miso. It was trained using BERT, uh, you know, uh, Google's um, large language model. And I sometimes think that Google's release of BERT may be analogous to IBM's release of the, PC specs and may mark the end of certain aspects of Google's dominance because these large language models uh, really encapsulate a lot of what you know people like Google did, which was to sort of capture all the the collective knowledge and, and, and they make it accessible. And again, obviously we've had to retrain, we had to train it uh, on our own corpus, but th there was this base there Uh, which made it amazingly simple to, uh, you know, to have you know Google quality search on our corpus, and so I, I sort of see, for example, that decentralized uh, search, and and so sort of, I, I think it's going to be very interesting for Amazon too, because um, you know e-commerce search is going to get a lot better, much more plain language because of, of some of these machine learning uh, capabilities. So everybody who's thinking about, uh, you know, how do I make my e-commerce better? You know, you are going to be able to just describe what you want in plain language, just like you can with our, our answers. You know, you want to know the answer to some question and bang, oh my God, you know, I can just talk to this thing. And, and, uh, There's going to be a lot of, of applications of, of ML, but that's just one that I, you know, personally have been, you know, feel is is really transformative for our business. Uh, yeah, I think we're still early in cloud. You know, everybody's kind of getting it, but uh, one of the big mistakes we often, I, I've probably made more. It's probably the mistake I've made more often in my career than anything else. I'm, I'm kind of living in the future, and I think, oh, it's arrived. And you realize, oh no, there's so much more to arrive. You know, I mean, the, like I see it with the, with the early, you know, what I, people I used to call the alpha geeks, and I go, oh, it's it's hit the mainstream. You know, it's over, move on. And of course, when I think it's it's hit the mainstream, it's really just the early adopters. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I guess what I would say is, uh, you know, uh, I think cloud is is still really in its early adopter phase. Uh, and, and it's more than people SaaS realize potentially as well, right? I mean, SaaS pretty much sticks, yeah, exactly. sticks yeah. to the cloud. And I, th I think there, there are big chances for, let's say people that just want to bootstrap a company to just 
build a subscription model, build a nice SaaS company and, yeah. and, and yeah. get it running, right? Well, and I think there's this whole API economy now where there's so many things that you can do simply by pointing to some API endpoints. You know, you think about, uh, you know, companies like Stripe uh, you know, with payments where they've, uh, you know, or Twilio, you know, they're really just, it's kind of was part of that original vision I had of, uh, uh, you know, of Web 2.0, which was this sort of, you know, the programmable web uh, is really becoming true in, in a way that it, in the early days, it, yeah, it was a few areas, but really it's becoming a real a programmable fabric. Uh, I remember in the, in the first Web 2.0 conference in 2004, uh, Bram Cohen of BitTorrent made fun, he gave a talk make, making fun of my idea that the internet was becoming the operating system. And of course now it's pretty damn obvious that it is. Uh, I was right, but it was, uh, but it was a little early in 2004 to be calling that one. <laughs> uh, but the third, I, I think the third, you talk about, uh, I think there's a really interesting uh, thing that I think a lot about because we're in the online learning business, which is uh, knowledge augmentation. And, um, you know, we forget how much uh, the world is changing under us. You know, we have, we have, we basically have mental prosthetics in a way that we didn't have before. You know, and I, I use Google Maps as a, as a great example. You know, we all can get anywhere, anytime. We outsource that to a machine. And you can see how, you know, that then enabled things like on demand grocery delivery, on demand car hire, uh, all those capabilities that were there in in GPS, uh, you know, once all the pieces came together and we all had smartphones with GPS in them, we all, you know, people started to build that next layer up. And, you know, like uh, the integration of humans and machines in new ways, uh, you know, so that, that workers are augmented, you know, like, a, you know, like say like an Uber driver is an augmented worker, you know, they, they're kind of, they are an extension of the machine, an Amazon delivery driver, extension of the machine, Amazon warehouse worker, extension of the machine. So I would say to CTOs, think about what technologies are augmentations for your workers. And again, that's what drives our thinking at the O'Reilly platform. How do we make it a more useful set of augmentations for software developers? Um, and 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 I, I think that we're going to wake up one day and realize that we've built uh, entirely different workflows around this idea of of human and machine partnerships and and discover and companies that get better at that uh, are going to have a real competitive advantage. I mean, if you look at people, at companies like Google, like Amazon, that's the heart of what they're good at. They're, 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 they've, they've done these really creative, powerful integrations of human and machine around tasks that couldn't be done by either alone. Thanks a lot. Very good answer. <laughs> I like it a lot. Um, and yeah, very, very thoughtful and deep. Um, I anyhow still have a little surprise for you, Tim. So uh, I actually found found a book in my bookshelf published by you 
called Python for Time Travelers. And um, <laughs> I, I, I saw a very simple code snippet, which used like a secret function in Pandas, in the Pandas library, uh, to actually not only handle time series data and process it, but also travel back in time. And um, we now have the chance to travel back in the early 90s. I think you published a book called... Um, the Internet User's Guide back then, uh, which you shot yeah. after uh, sold to, to, to AOL, I think. And we now have the chance to observe you for a while. And then you get the chance to whisper something into, into your ears back then. What would it be? Oh, I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so many things that, uh, uh, you know, it, you might do differently in retrospect, but uh, I don't think I would really change all that much. I mean, I, I definitely think that I missed some opportunities because I was sort of stubborn and I wanted to have my own company and I did not want to take money. I'd been a consultant and I didn't want to go that way. Um, but I wanted to just keep doing what I loved, which was to help people uh, to learn. And uh, and I feel really, really good about that. And I, I guess the, 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 the um, yeah, I think of that great uh, Stuart Brand quote that Steve Jobs loved, stay hungry, stay foolish. Um, I, 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 I think about it, I guess I don't, I guess my version of that would be, um, Yeah, we live in a world where there's so much opportunity to invent and the creativity of people is the joy. Uh, you know, that's what we're good at. We're good at inventing for each other. And whether it's in art or music or coding, you know, just make shit that's amazing. And uh you know, I use this line all the time, create more value than you capture. Don't, you know, Silicon Valley has gone wrong around it, thinking it's all about money. It's all about creating stuff you love that other people will love. Thanks a lot. <laughs> great, great closing sentences and uh, good reflection. So, um, yeah, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you, Tim. Um, and it was an honor uh, meeting you personally here, uh, even if it was was virtual. I uh, hope we get the chance to, to change that in the future. I wish you a lot of luck in, in your personal life and your, 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 your business and uh, the stuff you love doing. And yeah, thanks a lot for, for, for being here. All right. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly and the About You Cloud. If you want to know more about Fastly services, simply visit fastly.com slash alphalist. If you want to get in touch with About You and hear more about the About You Cloud, simply write to hello at aboutyou.com. Thanks a lot.